John chapter 15. Now, we read the scripture already this morning, but I want to remind you here that uh, this chapter introduces the second section of Jesus' farewell address to the disciples before his arrest and crucifixion. The first part of it we saw there beginning the latter part of chapter 13 and running through chapter 14. This is the upper room discourse after which he said, let's uh, rise and, and depart from here. So I believe that chapters 15 and 16 were discussion with his disciples as they left the upper room and traveled through the streets of Jerusalem toward uh, the Kidron, which they crossed over up onto uh, the Mount of Olives there on the east and to the Garden of Gethsemane. A prayer that's recorded though in John chapter 17, and I mentioned that last week, I do not believe was prayed there. I believe it was prayed while they were still there because the 18th chapter of John tells us that after he finished these things, which is the 17th chapter, they crossed over the, the Kidron then to go to the place of prayer. So that was prayed before uh, they, that he got to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then uh, as I uh, humorously mentioned though, that it, John records all the details of it there in John chapter 17. But when they got to the Garden of Gethsemane, he was sleeping. So he could not have heard all of, all of the details. But the, the 15th chapter then is that second part of that address. The upper room discourse. Now we have the, the uh, uh, vine metaphor. Uh, that is discussed here, and that this discourse is in two parts, actually three parts. We're going to cover the third part next week, but the, uh, but the three parts are these. The metaphor, that would be chapter uh, verses 1 through 8, and then the uh, discussion of that metaphor, the explanation of it from, chapter, uh, from verse 9 through, chap, uh, through verse 16, and then the, the, the last portion of it, which are, is verses 17 through 26, is a warning that the believers will be hated in the world. You know, we in America have enjoyed relative freedom from persecution. And we sympathize with those in China or in the Middle East or other places that have suffered persecution, some like in Russia, even uh, uh, dying for their faith. We really don't understand persecution. But I believe it's coming here. Unless things change, they're already talking about it. They're on the national news. I saw a little a clip there where they grouped a number of these uh, commentators there on the various news channels all saying the same thing. The, now the threat to America is white nationalist Christians. White nationalist Christians. What is that? I don't you know. But uh, Jesus said... Blessed are you, and men revile you, and persecute you, and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. 
So we may soon have the opportunity to experience real persecution. It will separate the sheep from the goats and the wheat from the chaff. Those who belong to Jesus Christ will stand their ground. Those who won't merely profess him will fall away like a leaf in the, in the autumn. But this message that we're, that we're emphasizing today covers the explanation of the metaphor. Jesus said, I am the true vine. We covered that last week. When Jesus said, I am the true vine, the obvious implication is he is comparing himself with another vine that's not the true vine. And we pointed out last week that that vine, it was the nation of Israel itself. Jesus is the true Israel. He fulfills everything that God expected of old of the old covenant Israel. Psalm 80, and this is what I want you to look at, Psalm 80 here this morning as we begin, we're going, before we look at the uh, explanation, we want to look at Psalm, the Psalm 80 connection. I went back into it again this week and I said, I've got to, I've got to address this somewhat. And I believe I'm just going to read the 80th Psalm to you as well uh, before we look at it here uh, briefly and then look at the... Uh, implications how the implications work out but uh, verse number one psalm 80 verse one give ear O shepherd of israel who is the shepherd of israel well john 10 tells us that it's jesus he said i am the good shepherd i'm the good shepherd and here again he's contrasting himself with the shepherds that failed the shepherds that were only looking out for themselves and were profiting off of their their position, uh, even to the harm of the sheep. But Jesus said, "I'm the good shepherd." It's interesting that David is uh, was a shepherd. God called him to be the king of Israel because he was a faithful shepherd over the flock there of his father. So now. We read here, give ear, O shepherd of Israel. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's not only the good shepherd, he's the great shepherd and the chief shepherd. O give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. That's the throne that is the mercy seat that was in the temple that was overshadowed by the cherubim. Before Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, and Benjamin, that's the southern kingdom, and Manasseh, that's the, that's the people that were on the east side of the Jordan, stir up your might and come to save us. You're in trouble. Here's a plea. We need you to save us. So what's the issue? O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine. Show us gracious favor. 
that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed upon it. Turn again, O God of hosts, Look down from heaven and see and have regard for this vine, the stock of your right hand, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you have made strong for yourself. Who is the son? That's Israel. Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 says, Out of Egypt have I called my son. And in the context of, of Hosea, Chapter 11, verse 1, the, the son is clearly the people of Israel. But it, isn't it interesting that in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus was taken by his parents into Egypt to protect them from King Herod, we read then that they returned and Matthew quotes, and he says they're coming out and was to fulfill the scripture, out of Egypt have I called my son. So here again, Jesus is the true Israel. He is the Son whom you have made strong for yourself. Verse 16, they have burned it with fire, they have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand. That's Jesus whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not... No, notice this. If, if, if the Lord answers this prayer, then this is what's going to result. You will not... We will not turn back from you. And that's the implication that they had turned back from him. Then, now they want to be restored and so that and to the point where they don't turn back from him. Give us life. And we will call, excuse me, call upon your name. Restore us. O God of hosts, let your face, let your face shine that we may be saved. So let's look at that. Jesus' declaration that he was the true vine demonstrates the fulfillment then of Psalm 80. I really believe that this is the case. The psalmist appealed to the shepherd of Israel, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Jesus, the man of Yahweh's right hand, verse 17 here, is the good shepherd of Israel, according to John chapter 10, verse 11, and he came to answer the prayer of that of the psalmist. The psalmist here is pleading for God to turn away his anger against the people of God and to restore them to a place 
where His face, that is His gracious favor, would shine upon them that they might be delivered from their calamity, according to Psalm 80, verse 8. The argument here is based on God's purpose for them. He said, you brought you. You did, God. You did it. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations from the promised land and you planted it. And then one would expect then that this purpose of God would prosper and that uh, all would rejoice in the glorious and fruitful vineyard thriving as a testimony to the God of heaven before all the nations. God would be glorified in this. But this plan of God failed. I said, why? Because God was using it to focus upon a greater purpose that is fulfilled in it. And the diligent reader cannot but conclude that the vine planted by God's own right hand turned away from Him and did so to pursue their own way, which is the case. So secondly, notice, this failure posed then a dilemma which is expressed in the, in the question, why then have you broken down its walls? Vineyards were protected with hedges, with stone walls and with thorny hedges to keep the stranger out of there and to keep particularly wild animals, wild boars and so forth that would come in and eat the grapes and destroy the vineyard in the process. So this is the question. You took down its protection. You tore down everything that was guarding the vine. You allowed the strangers to come and eat its fruit freely. You allowed the wild boar to come in and to eat it. So the question is, why? The psalmist assumes God's displeasure as shown by his destruction of the vineyard. However, he does not reveal the reason for Yahweh's anger. To this, we have to turn to the prophet Isaiah. The fifth chapter of Isaiah gives us a lot of detail. I'm not going to read the fifth chapter, but let me touch upon some things there from that fifth chapter. In the 25th verse of that fifth chapter, the the prophet says, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. Ah, so the question now is, why was he angry? And again, I emphasize the diligent reader cannot but conclude that the vine planted by God's own hand had turned away from him to pursue its own way. Isaiah supports this in verse number 2 of of Isaiah chapter 5. We read there, He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. What are wild grapes? Wild grapes serve as a metaphor here for the moral failure of Israel, beginning with its governing authorities. Isn't it interesting how this sin began even at the top. 
I really don't think it began at the top. I think it began at the roots, but it manifests itself at the top. So we read there in the in the seventh verse of, of Isaiah five, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. There, it's identified very clearly. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. Remember, notice he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now he uses the same language. He looked for it. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. It's interesting here that he uses a play of words in the Hebrew language. We miss it totally because of the translation. But uh, here's what it here's the here's what it says. Uh, the leadership here failed, and they failed to to uphold the law of God. And the the for the Hebrew word justice here, and the Hebrew word bloodshed are sound almost alike. In fact, you got to listen carefully to to distinguish the difference. And the same is true with the word righteousness and the word outcry. So they in the Hebrew. They very, they very much sound alike. God looked for justice, but he's only but what he saw was bloodshed, which sounds just almost like justice. He looked for righteousness, and behold, an outcry. Now here's the here's the thing: the, the leadership failed to uphold the law of God. Somehow we get this impression that that we come into the New Testament and the law of God is kicked away and uh, is no longer relevant. That's not true. God's not looking to dismiss His law. He's looking to see it perfectly fulfilled. And it was perfectly fulfilled in Jesus and now for those that are in Jesus, it becomes, this becomes the issue. Righteousness. They failed to uphold the law of God, which is righteousness. And by default, perverted justice. We we talk about an example of it today. We're seeing a double standard all over. How displeased God must be with this nation that righteousness is not upheld, that justice is perverted. But this failure then trickles down to the the people, to the people themselves, encouraging them to live unrighteously. So their covenant Lord then brought on them judgment for this failure. We read there in Isaiah 5, verses 15 and 16, Man is humbled in the in this judgment, and each one is brought low, and his eye and the eyes of the haughty are brought low, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in judge in justice, and holy the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Now here here's a simple truth. God doesn't change. I'm going to really emphasize that. God does not change. 
But when we fail to live up to God's standards, we meet a holy God's wrath. And that's what this psalm tells us. He doesn't just, oh, I, that's too bad. I know you're not perfect. But, you know, I'm forgiving and I'm loving. Pat, pat, pat on the head. I know you're, dry, you're doing your best. God doesn't want us to do our best. He's not interested in our best. He's interested in divine perfection. Be perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Jesus said. I can't be perfect. Well, then that, that throws me in, on utter dependence upon God. But God doesn't change His standard because I can't meet it. And that's an important truth that we need to keep in mind. So man is humbled in this. So that brings us to then this point, the third point there. Psalm 80 then is actually a prayer for revival. And this is the work of God. The psalmist isn't going to pray that prayer on his own. But as God begins to work in the psalmist, he, he, his heart is broken and he's moved. And he begins to cry out to God in the midst of this divine judgment for, for God to, to bring revival. The psalmist cries out, Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Three times in this psalm, these exact words are repeated. Verse 7, restore us. That's verse 3. Then verse 7, restore us, O God of hosts, so let your face shine that we may be saved. And the psalm ends with a third appeal. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Two things grab our attention in this. First of all, the plea is for God to repent of his anger toward his people. Turn again or restore. Turn again. Notice in verse 14 and 15. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and have regard for this vine, the stalk of your right hand that your right hand planted for the son that you have made strong for yourself. The Hebrew word here, turn again, means to turn about or to turn around. It means to, uh, you're going one direction, you turn and go another direction. What is that? That's the definition of repentance. To repent. And then, and in this case, the plea is to, to turn around, to change his mind, to then do something different than he's doing. He's destroying, so then instead of destroying now restore the damage that are, that's done in your wrath and it is an appeal for God to change his mind and thus his actions towards them now that presents to us a problem if God is the same and cannot change how does he repent but we read in, in the Old Testament scriptures that God does change his mind what is, but is it really God changing his mind or is this a figure of speech to help us somehow understand the situation? But I would emphasize to you again, God cannot change. 
So what does it mean that God changes His mind and His actions towards us? What must be understood is that the prayer is not that God would change. As I said, He cannot. But here the prayer is that God respond to the sinful failures of His creatures, particularly those who have cho- He has chosen for Himself. In order for God to change, His people change. When people do right, God is pleased. When people do wrong, God is angry. So if we're going to have God change His mind, we have to change. We are the ones that are changed. And that is a cry for God to do this in His people. And therefore, eliminate the cause of His displeasure. This was the concern of Solomon when Solomon dedicated the temple. He understood here a vital truth. This house of God he and he was, was for a holy and pure, righteous God. And he understood then that God was going to treat the nation as they were treating as they were treating him. And he prayed, Lord, we know that if you withhold the rain, it's because of your displeasure. And we, we know that if the enemy comes in, it's because of your displeasure. So Lord, as I dedicate this house to you, I'm asking you that it, when, when we fail you, will you come and make a difference? He prayed that prayer and closed it. Then in uh, chapter uh, 6, verse 49, when he prays here, which is very similar then to Psalm 80, verses 14 and 15. And what he, what Solomon prayed was, O Lord God, do not turn away your face from your anointed one. And he is referring here to the king. And, to me, and I don't want to get into too many details here, but uh, he, then he repeats here, Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. What Solomon doesn't really understand, I don't think he fully understood, is that it's really not David, nor David's lesser son, Solomon, but David's greater son, Jesus Christ, that's the object of that prayer. Your steadfast, remember your steadfast love for your greater son, Jesus Christ. And that night God responded by declaring a very famous reference there, Second Chronicles 7, 13 and 14. God said, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people, notice, my people, it's the people here that change who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. I will restore. I will restore. Yes, his people sinned and deserved the judgment rendered. But his glory has got to be the final focus. God is not glorified 
when his people are disobedient and he de- and he deals in with us in justice so for the sake of your name for the sake of your glory for the sake of your honor not our comfort but you lord revive us again that your people may rejoice in you so that the psalmist declares they have burned it, that is the vine, with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. See, he brought, God brought enemies in to do this, this bidding. But let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, the king of kings, <laughs> whom you have made strong for yourself in order to bring about the purpose of your glory. Then we shall not turn back from you, give us life, and we will call upon your name. Second, I want you to notice here the difference in these three pleas. In the third, in the first plea, there is simply a reference to Elohim, God, the generic name for the highest being in the universe, the creator of all things, the distinction being that there is only one Elohim and then there is the rest. <laughs> then there is us. O oh God, let your face shine that we may be saved. So here it's distinguished from, uh, distinguishing God from his creation. As God is, as God be merciful to your creatures who cannot exist without you. The second appeal is to God as God of hosts. As the captain of the armies of heaven. In this appeal, the psalmist recognizes that God is using Israel's enemies to punish them. We read constantly in the Old Testament that God calls various pagan nations his servants that he uses in this regard. So then the third appeal is for Yahweh Lord God of hosts. Yahweh God of hosts. And that term, that's the covenant name by which he's identified with his people, Yahweh. So this brings it home to the people of God. God has a covenant relationship with his people. He is faithful to that covenant. His grace then is needed for his covenant people to be faithful also. They deserve his wrath. But the the plea is to restore. Restore is the plea that God would stop his attack on the vine and restore the devastation. The one whom God will use in this restoration is the man of his right hand, the son of man made strong for himself, which is Jesus Christ, the true vine. The psalm then records the results of this mercy. Then we will not turn back from you. That's the first thing. And this is the negative way of expressing that they would remain or abide in him. 
We won't turn away. We'll, we'll remain. We'll stay. We'll, we'll, we'll continue to abide in you. And then secondly, that, they, that uh, they will have their life in him. Jesus said, abide in me. Because if you don't abide in me, you can't live. I'm the life. I am the true life. Abide in me. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. And then thirdly, when they remain in him and obey in obedience, then they can pray. And so he said so it says as and we will call upon your name. They will pray. They will ask whatever they need in God's name and he will grant their request. Twice in John 15 he emphasizes that truth. So let's consider then here uh, the, the principles of the abiding. And the principles of the abiding I have listed are six but I'm going to be brief with them. Six principles here of the abiding. The first principle is of this abiding is love. And we see that in the very first verse there of that second section, verse six, uh, verse uh, number uh, uh, seven. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Remain in my love. Now it's interesting. Abide in me, and now he's in the metaphor. He emphasizes abide in me. But now he takes that a step further and he says, abide in my love. And then he uh, compares this love or gives us the standard of this love, which is the Father's love for him. As the Father has loved me. And uh, what's interesting in the Greek here is uh, has loved is an aorist tense and it means a full and complete love. Think about that. The Heavenly Father loved Jesus with an unreserved, full, and complete love. So as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Again, it's the aorist. I don't know how this affects you, but... I'm overwhelmed that my Savior expresses that He loves me with the love that His Father has for Him, which is full, complete, and perfect. It's not halfway. It's not iffy. There's no fault in it. There's no, there's no condition. Well, there is a condition. But here again, love provides the grace that meets the condition. So he says, have I loved you? Complete. Second of all, this covenant love. Because of this covenant love, Christ pressed the responsibility of his loved ones to remain in that love. Who wouldn't? Any reasonable person who was confronted with the fact that his God had declared his full and unreserved love for him 
what kind of hardness, what kind of sinfulness, what kind of, of uh, reprobation would be in the heart of a man who would say, keep it, I'm not interested. Do you know Jesus? Do you understand what he's just saying here? How can you just turn around and say, I don't, I just, I'm not interested. I'd, I'd rather live my own life. I'd rather do my own thing. I'm not interested. Whoa. But here's the, here's the responsibility. And has already been shown. Remaining, we talked about this last week, but remaining, the, the word remaining here involves obedience. We're commanded to remain. We are the, the the source of that remaining is His grace. We are we remain because He gives us the grace to do so. But it's still it's it's our responsibility. That in, in other words, I have to, I'm thinking about it. I'm the one who is deciding in my own heart because of your wonderful, complete, and full love to me. I give you my unreserved life. I, I hold nothing back from you. You are all I want. You're all I need. I will remain in you. That involves obedience. One's love for Jesus motivates his obedience to him. So Jesus said in verse 10, if you love my, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Here again, notice the comparison. Jesus said, I abide in my father's love. How? Because I kept kept his commandments. So I want you to continue in my love. By keeping my commandments. Jesus commands his own to remain in his love. And he previously had stated. In verse chapter 14 verse 15. If you love me. You will keep my commandments. And in verse 21 of that chapter. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. He it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. And then in verse 23. If anyone loves me. He will keep my word. And my father will love him. And we will come to him. And make our home with him. Wow. John apparently was very impressed with this because in his first epistle, in chapter 5, verse 13, he writes, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not a burden. They're not a burden. But that brings us then thirdly to a word of caution in the matter. Beware of reading Christ's commandment for loving obedience as pressing an absolute alternative. We, 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 we tend to do that. Well, what do I mean by that? I'm saying here Jesus is not arguing that it is either 
perfect obedience or apostasy. Because I don't think any of us in this room here this morning could lift his hand and say, I'm in perfect obedience to God. Does that mean then that he wants nothing to do with us? No, we're here in this life in in the development stage. We're in a development stage. The perfection comes when Jesus comes to receive us to himself and we're changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye to be made exactly like him forever. But in this this time, we're not going to be perfect. But does that mean then that we just say, well, oh well. You know, I'm not perfect and the world is sure attractive out there to me. I think I'm just going to just trust God that he's going to keep me and I'm going to go enjoy myself all I can. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. That's a command to keep. But what Jesus is arguing is that he has established here the ultimate standard. And this is the point. He's not saying, you know, I know... I know you guys, you failed me a lot already and you're going to fail me some more. But, uh, but you know, I'm just going to shrug my shoulders. No, he's saying, here's the ultimate standard. If you love me, keep my commandments. What if I fail? Then I cry out for... for repentance and forgiveness I don't just say well God's God of grace he's just going to overlook that he's going to let me go Jesus has paid the price so everything's fine no it's not and I think this is where we begin to separate the sheep from the goats the ultimate standard will be fully realized when Jesus comes again. But as long as we're here, we're in the flesh. And we walk, and our walk will be imperfect. But when the salvation is complete, we will be fully obedient and perfect love. Until then, we're going to be struggling. So the great God's great gift then uh, is Christ's death and resurrection... To, to help the struggling saints and because of Christ's death and resurrection we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. The word of God and the work of the Spirit then are God's gracious means to promote this growth unto Christ's likeness. Believing this good news, the saints by faith must pursue holiness which Paul tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You hear that? Divine discipline also enters the picture here. For Back in verse 10 of that 12th chapter, Paul said, He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. That brings me to point four, which is that saints can be assured that, that they are doing right in their imperfect walk because of the joy that they will experience. Do you have joy? Is your heart filled with joy 
Jesus says, These things have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy, as a consequence, may be full. Joy is the evidence of divine pleasure in the saint's obedience. That his face is shining on them. You make it you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Real pleasure, not worldly pleasure, but real pleasure. God wants us to enjoy and have joy. Enjoy and have joy. Psalm 16, verse 11. Nehemiah testified, The joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah 8, verse 10. Jesus previously promised peace. There in 14, 27. The understanding, which is the understanding that all has been completely reconciled God's people are reconciled fully to God. And so we read in Romans 8 and verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. And so the psalmist, Psalm 119 verse 165 said, Great peace have they which love your law, and nothing shall make them stumble. This understanding then informs one's trust. And the consequence is peace, the peace of God that guards the believer, according to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7. Let, and therefore in Colossians 3, 15 and 16, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called into one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That brings me to number five here. The Lord defined the content. And there's where it's really going to get rough. You thought that it was hard up to this point? Hang on. <laughs> it's going to get harder. The Lord defines the content of his command. In verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Whoops. We love ourselves. Our comfort and our condition is the primary factor in this life. How much concern do we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Whoa. This command is based on the example of Christ. Indeed, Jesus will demonstrate the ultimate expression of that love. Greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Verse 13. Jesus telling the disciples, guys, I want to tell you here what that love looks like. I'm about to go to the cross. And I'm going to suffer and bleed and die in your place and suffer the wrath of God for you. It's because I love you. Are you willing to do that for each other? Obviously not in an atoning sense. But how much are we willing to give up ourselves to, to the welfare of those are, that are around us, that are brothers and sisters? John repeats this truth in his first epistle again. 
he said, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and then he applies it. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Obviously, no one but Christ can pay the sin debt. But saints are called upon to live and maybe die for others. John continues. 1 John chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and assure our hearts before Him. Well, we can talk the language, but it's not in, it's not in our words, it's in our deeds. Self-pursuit of one's own interests can only lead to disappointment, uncertainty, and unhappiness. As we read there in the Proverbs, chapter 1, verses 29 to 31, because they hated knowledge, and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel, and despise my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their own way, and have their fill of their own devices. And you see that all around you. And then finally, and let me quickly close. Jesus closed this section with two powerful and comforting truths. The first is that Jesus elevated his people to the status of friends. I named this sermon Friends, and now I'm just talking about it. Think about that. The relationship of a, of a servant to the king is really what we are. We're slaves. We're doulos. Slaves. We've been bought, redeemed from the slave market of sin. To, from serving the one master, Satan, to serving a new master, Jesus. We're still slaves. But Jesus elevates our status in this verse. And I'm, I wonder how it, uh, it affected the hearts of the disciples that heard it that day. Wow. Greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And then he immediately defined this friendship. You are my friends if you do what I command you. What distinguishes the disciple friends then from servants is this. Now we're insiders. We're now insiders. So verse 15. All that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You know, Old Testament saints were constantly under the mystery. They didn't know. New Testament saints have the mystery revealed. Second, the, this, lest the disciples should get a big head, he reminds them of his sovereignty and their salvation. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Verse 16. I close with a paragraph here from D.A. Carson, Don Carson, in his Gospel according to John, page number 523, he, he, he says this, and I, I just, I thought, I, this is so well expressed, I want to just put it in as it is. One purpose of election then 
is that the disciples who have been so blessed with revelation and understanding should win others to the faith. Fruit that will last. Chapter 8, verses, verse 31, which reads, If you abide in me, in, uh, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, my followers. With these references to fruit and to its enduring quality, and the verb again is meno, which means to remain, it becomes clear that these closing illustrations to the vine imagery ensure that however comprehensive the nature of the fruit that Christians bear, the focus is on evangelism and missions, which is truly central. End quote. In other words, Jesus' mission is to gather a people for himself out of every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation. Lasting fruit must be the reason for our love for God and others. Our selfless service in the bond of unity, our obedient remaining in him in order that we may see fruit for the glory of God. Our remaining in him. And that's why we exist as a church. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for its, its truth. Lord, I pray, God, as we've heard this and we know ourselves, we understand ourselves, we plead and we pray, oh God, make your face to shine upon us, be gracious to us, show mercy upon us. Lord, give us the grace to call upon your name, to humble ourselves, to forsake our sins, to turn from all of our selfish activity, to be selfless servants of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, called friends, loved by divine, complete love. Oh God, burn it into our hearts and bring about the real change in us that your change, Lord, may be grace in us. Restore us, O oh God. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.